News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there has been an awful lot in the news in the last 24 hours about this proposal from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Now, he thinks that the city of Vancouver should explore the idea of an empty storefront tax. The idea being they believe the empty homes tax has been successful in returning inventory to the rental pool rather than, you know, sitting empty. Why not do the same for empty storefronts? But my question in hearing and reading about this is, well, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. Why are so many storefronts empty? Don't we care about that? Should we be punishing these businesses or should we be asking the question about what's going on here and can we help you get some uh, stores in there to help these neighborhoods thrive instead of punishing people? Like, What is the reason this is going on here? That's what I'm wondering about that. So we had a chance to speak to Andy Yan, who's the director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. He's actually done quite a bit of research on this particular issue. And according to him, there are a number of factors that there are so many empty storefronts. I think that that this is really, I think, some really important research that still needs to occur within the city of Vancouver is really to understand exactly why are these storefronts empty, as I think what we found in other research, I think in Canada and the United States, there are a variety of reasons. Uh, I think in, in, in the most straightforward reason, it goes down to the fact that the landlord can't find a tenant who wants to take over that particular storefront. But then, of course, there are other kind of complexities towards, say, a tenant is unwilling to lower rents through which will attract small businesses to that storefront. Um, the the landlord may not be able to lower rents because of financial agreements and 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 prearranged um, um, really contracts with their lenders through which don't allow them to lower rents to really deciding that they want to keep it empty. So it's a whole spectrum of per- perspective reasons why a why a storefront is kept empty, and that I think that something like an empty uh, empty storefront tax is. I think certainly one policy instrument, and it has been talked about in the United States. There was a great presentation in terms of talking about the role of storefront, empty storefront taxes in in being filled up in particular cities like New York City, uh, Washington D.C., as well as San Francisco. So it all, I think, comes to under the need to understand the reasons why a storefront is empty. Yes, thank you. Okay, that is Andy Yan from Simon Fraser University. That was my question too when I heard, you know, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, he was on with Jazz Johal yesterday talking about the need for this. And I thought, well, that's really punitive because there's got to be reasons why this is happening. Isn't there a way for us to encourage these businesses to get open as opposed to punishing them for, you know, not making it happen faster? Now, one of the interesting things about this study as well that Andy and his team released was not just the why, but also the question of where this is all taking place. Well, that's the whole thing is that when we talk about empty storefronts and organized along, say, um, business improvement areas, um, the BIAs, that we'll find that the BIAs that 
I think, cover some neighborhoods through which have, I think, distinct challenges in terms of incomes, whether that be Strathcona, Hastings Crossing, that uh, those BIAs at 27% in Strathcona and 22% in Hastings Crossing uh, around the downtown east side neighborhood have the highest vacancy rate, storefront vacancy rates in the entire city. But following those two uh, BIAs, we actually find that the following two BIAs are actually Point Grey Village at 17% and Dunbar at seven, Dunbar Village at 17% that uh, that have the if you will third and fourth highest vacancy rates storefront vacancy rates in the city of Vancouver so you have both um the both well, neighborhoods through which are affiliated with some of the lowest income, as well as neighborhoods that are perhaps in some of the highest income neighborhoods in the city that have seen very high uh, storefront vacancy rates. Okay, so again, interesting, right? It's happening all over, it sounds like, in the city. But is there not a way for the city to say to the people who own that building, hey, how can we help you? What can we do to encourage people to get a business in here as opposed to keeping it empty? We'd really like to find a way to do that. So Andy, who, as I said, is the director of the city program at SFU, also talked about some of the possible solutions here. A lot of this does come into identifying what the core of the problem is and then coming out with the solutions, which I think a lot of times also need to be connected towards the local business community in these neighborhoods. Um, one other idea is really connected up to the role of density, that there is a reality that in some of these neighborhoods that there isn't necessarily the base, the customer base through which allow businesses to be viable, that uh, we found an interesting number that when it comes to around 40 people per hectare, which isn't a really big density, but a density that can be found in Kitsilano or along Commercial Drive or in Strathcona, that that potentially has a mitigating effect in terms of keeping businesses active. So then you can kind of see how there's a variety of reasons uh, across the city towards why these vacancies are happening. Okay, which to me suggests that the city needs a much more nuanced approach to this than to just say, we need an empty storefront tax uh, to, you know, encourage these places to open. I feel like we need to dig a little deeper into this. So this is, you know, the idea of this tax proposal. It's not the only new development in this situation. There's new census data as well that was just released that adds more clarity in understanding what's going on with these empty storefronts. Well, the new census data today, I think, really talks to uh, the kinds of neighborhoods that are around these uh, these these commercial areas, and really the kind of changing aspects of demographics. How in certain neighborhoods we see, I, I think, us populations in these communities uh, aging, and 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 in one way, kind of adjusting themselves towards being a, a bit smaller. So then, there there just isn't necessarily the kind of consumer base that used to be there, say, 10 or 20 years ago to support these small businesses, uh, through which doesn't necessarily help the situation, that uh, within the, the the overall census, uh, this, this particular data round, uh, we talk about really how many of the central cities in Vancouver are aging, that they have a population through which um, ex- existing housing costs are now so expensive that you indeed have to be uh, a bit 
older to be able to afford moving into certain neighborhoods, I, I, interestingly enough. And I think that this is all, I think, coming into almost the perfect storm against small businesses thriving in many neighborhood commercial districts. Okay, see, that is so interesting. That is Andy Yan. Andy is the uh, director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. His team has actually done a lot of research on the issue of empty storefronts. And this is the thing that drives me crazy about politics sometimes, especially in an election year like we have for municipal politicians this year, is that they can throw out the glib, you know, oh, let's do something about empty storefronts. We're going to tax them and force them to, you know, get those places open but we're not asking the why. What's happening? What are the challenges to small businesses? How can we help small business owners and encourage them to get in those spaces? How can we help landowners make that economically viable for them to make this happen? There's, It's different in every neighborhood, as Andy Yan just pointed out there, and I just feel like sometimes politics doesn't lend itself to getting into that in an election year, but clearly there's a lot more going on here with empty storefronts than just saying people are unwilling to rent them out, because I don't think that's actually the case. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Everybody wants to see their thriving neighborhood, right? Everybody wants to see so storefronts rented, places to go, small businesses to visit. So if you're a small business owner, I'd also love to hear from you. How can we encourage that to happen? How can we make it happen? Not an empty storefront tax that would punish people for not you know, getting those places rented, but how can we help those businesses open? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The demand for housing in BC still remains huge. The demand still outstrips supply by far, even though we have these latest census figures that just came out yesterday that show us that we did increase the number of homes over the last five years. In fact, we had growth in the number of homes higher than the increase in population right across the country. So the growth in apartments in a building with five or more stories has far outpaced any other type of dwelling here in BC. Although across the country, single family homes do remain kind of the dominant form, making up about half of all dwellings. So if we've made progress, if we are building, 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 what is still going on out there? Why are we still having these issues. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Leo Spalteholtz, who's a housing analyst at Homes for Living. Leo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Well, have you looked into this issue then? Like, is did we do a good job, do you think, in the last five years of building homes? No. And that you mentioned there about uh, homes actually growing at a faster rate than the population there's a few things underlying that. One is household sizes changing, and that's take, not taken into account there. And of course, um, if we look at the average household size right now, where there's a lot of larger homes around, single family homes, but what are we building? Mostly apartments. And uh, there won't be the same number of people living in those apartments. And so we actually have still been underbuilding um, despite those numbers. Okay, I see what you're saying there. So let's say people want to downsize and there's nowhere for them to downsize into because these places that we're building are too small. Yeah, that's right. There's there's a really lack of family-sized housing. And that's exactly it. I mean, you mentioned it there. We have an aging population. 
Um, you know, as a population gets older, kids leave the house, you know, suddenly you have what used to be one household uh, is now potentially three or four households. And so you need, despite no increase in the population, more homes. Okay, so I get this, Leo, because this feels like where I'm at right now in my life. And it's very clear that we are missing a whole segment of that. So what went on here? So what were we building for if we weren't building for this change in our population? Yeah, the most of that is due to restrictions in how we build our cities. I mean, the reality is in a lot of cities, Vancouver, Victoria, we don't have a lot of room to sprawl outwards. And so what can we build? Mostly condos. It's that kind of tall and sprawl, um, you know, model of city building, where in the majority of our land, the only thing that's allowed to be built is a single family house. You know, everything else is, is illegal under zoning. And then we have tall condos and there's nothing in the middle. And the reality is, you know, in Victoria, we've got an average house price of $1.3, $1.4 million. You know, most families will just not be able to afford that. And so that's why we have this huge pressure right now where, you know, they may not fit into a condo, but they can't afford a house. And right. there's really very little in between. But isn't that also because, you know, that's being built because that's what is being bought by, say, investors or whatever. But if developers were to build even bigger condos, like build something that's, you know, 12, 1500 square feet, two or three bedrooms that families can move into, wouldn't people buy that? Wouldn't they do that? Yeah, I think there's probably on the demand side more of a demand for the kind of ground-oriented single family or a kind of family-sized home. So something like a townhouse. Um, you know, I think there's still a bit of a hesitance for sort of family living in condos. I think they would sell. Um, I do think that it, part of why it's not built is because it tends to be more difficult with building codes and kind of window access regulations, things like that and tends to be less profitable than building, for example, a bunch of one-bedroom apartments, which also sell. Well, that's the thing, right? It's, so they, buy, they build what sells and what is cheaper for them to build. So how do we change this? Well, one of the things that we're pushing for on a local level and on a provincial level is zoning reform. So essentially changing what can be built by right. Right now, if somebody wants to build, say, five townhouses where there used to be two houses... Uh, it could take years. And so we've seen these zoning um, rezoning applications take years and years and years to go through the process. And so these townhouses that maybe we could have built for, you know, $500,000 um, five years ago, now, you know, the market rate has gone up to a million dollars. And so speeding that up, making that easier for um, people to build this missing middle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something we've seen, there's a bit of promising uh Progress in this area. The city of Victoria just last week legalized nonprofits building affordable housing without going through this public hearing process. So it really speeds it up, makes it faster, makes it cheaper to build affordable housing. Yeah, we saw that. We talked to the mayor actually about that. That seemed like a big step. Now, you're an analyst with Homes for Living, which is a group of community volunteers that are trying to make Greater Victoria kind of more affordable for renters and owners. Tell me about the group. How did this work come about? Yeah, this was a group that came together just about a year ago and really a broad cross-section of people struggling with housing um, or passionate about housing affordability, mostly in, in Greater Victoria. And that's everything from people frustrated that they can't buy a house because, you know, suddenly we've had a 50% jump in two years 
to people struggling with housing insecurity, struggling with homelessness, um, and, and the cost of rent. And so what we're really advocating for is change at the municipal level and also at the provincial level around zoning, but also in terms of increased funding for affordable housing, you know, cracking down on things like Airbnb, that kind of toxic demand that prevents people from living in those homes. So given what you've seen out there, you mentioned the Victoria case. Do you think things are changing? Is there a willingness to make these changes that might help? I actually do think there's a change. There's been a sea change in the approach to housing in a lot of different jurisdictions. We've seen very, very broad reforms in New Zealand. We've seen that in California just last year. Um, we've seen a lot of cities looking at broad upzoning. Uh, one of the local, you know, Edmonton uh, of all places is actually doing a lot of broad upzoning for missing middle. You know, Victoria is making some gains. We're looking forward to them to the uh, missing middle vote later this year. So I think it's changing because I think the number of people that are affected by the housing crisis is just growing so rapidly that, you know, people have realized we need to change how we're doing things. This is not working. That sounds about what everybody has been saying. What is the missing middle vote that you were just talking about? That's coming in front of Victoria Council um, later on this year, and they are basically looking at legalizing sort of uh, duplexes, triplexes, some townhouses in single family areas in the city of Victoria. Okay, so lots of important initiatives up front. Well, Leo, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, we appreciate that. That's Leo Spaltaholz, who's a housing analyst at Homes for Living in the Greater Victoria area. They're a community group that decided to advocate for some changes. I think that's something that probably a lot of communities could use right now. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. There's been lots of discussion recently about ways to revitalize and revive Chinatown in Vancouver. And I've got to tell you, this next idea we're going to talk about is one that I fully support and get behind. It has to do with the building. You've probably gone by it so many times. It's a city-owned mall that has definitely seen better days. It's Chinatown Plaza at 180 Kiefer Street. It's like a seven-story parkade and a three-story commercial building. And it pretty much sits virtually empty. But let's talk about what can be done with that. Jordan Ng joins us now, chair of the Chinatown Business Improvement Association. Jordan, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. I'm very enthusiastic about this, Jordan. So tell me about this idea. Well, this came through um, kind of a public or uh, consultation with um, people in the community. And uh, we thought, how do we bring new energy into Chinatown? And and how to bring excitement into the neighborhood. And one of the ideas that was floated was uh, the, the uh, Chinatown Parkade. It's, uh, it's a city-owned structure. It's been around for 30-plus years. Um, the retail space on, on the plaza is 70% vacant right now. And uh, what better way than to bring uh, a, a new experience into the mall? Um, and we thought, wow, a Chinatown culinary experience, a food hall, market, um, and cooking school. And, you know, it, it really, it, it kind of sat, this idea sat dormant for almost two years through the pandemic, but it's really taken some legs and, um, you know, we're really excited about um, the opportunity and, and, and hope that uh, the city will uh, buy into it. 
Okay, first of all, why shouldn't they? They were just, the mayor just yesterday was talking about empty storefronts and taxing them. And now you're telling me the city itself owns a building that has all these empty storefronts in it. So they should get on board. But also, you know, if I'm going to visit any city, Jordan, one of the first things I do is look to see which great food markets or food halls I can go to. Boy, we should have done this, I feel like, a long time ago. Well, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, to create a, a food cluster anchor in the heart of Chinatown, I mean, that would could really celebrate the cultural heritage of the community. And it'd be a real great economic driver to encourage, you know, uh, business development uh, around it as well. So that's, uh, you know, where, where we were coming from. Okay, what kind of places do you envision in there? Or what, what has that discussion happened? Well, uh, you know, this is all kind of uh, a discussion right now. And, and uh, But, you know, there's examples, like you say, across across the globe. I mean, Swan Market, Ferry Market down in San Francisco, Covent Garden in, in London. You have the Chelsea Market in New York. Um, Granville Island, something, you know, on a much smaller scale, but, you know, culturally focused. And uh, uh, those are really kind of the, the visions that we have, where you have food, you have arts, you have culture, all in a small package. And then, you know, you've got an 800-plus uh, parkade, and it's, it's largely empty um, most days except for game day. And it, it's got a great roof where you can put a culinary school, decks, and, and have, you know, have a great view and a meal in, uh, in the neighborhood. So, Okay. I'm sold, as you can tell. So how do we make this happen then, Jordan? What are the next steps here? Well, I, I think we need uh, uh, council to direct staff to uh, take a look into this and, and see uh, how they can make it happen. I think, uh, you know, the property is... Uh, owned by the city and run by the property endowment fund, um, which one of its mandate is highest and best use. Well, as it is right now, it's not. And it's also a social and um, social good and public benefits that uh, is in their mandate as well. So um, not only are they, would they be doing something good to the real estate to enhance its value, but also to, uh, to support the community. Okay. I think that's a great idea. I, I don't think we can actually do it fast enough, Jordan. Well, I hope uh, it can take some legs and we get some support from council. All right. Well, let me know if you need my help. I'm in. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. That is Jordan Ang, chair of the Chinatown Business Improvement Association. Uh, Yes, I'm enthusiastic about this because I think it's a genius idea. This idea of of taking that building, Chinatown Plaza, 180 Kiefer Street, which pretty much sits empty. It's just like a building you just drive by and you don't know what it is. It looks so anonymous. It's a seven-story parkade, three-story commercial building. And turning it into a great food hall in the Chinatown neighborhood, how fantastic is that? And boy, can I tell you, the irony of a city-owned building being 70% empty, and here you've got the mayor going around talking about an empty storefront tax, and the city itself is the landlord of a building that is sitting mostly empty. Uh, The irony. You can't make this stuff up on some days, can you? Think about the great food halls that you've been to when you have gone on vacation. Maybe you've gone to Grand Central Market in Los Angeles. I have. It's fantastic. Maybe you've gone to some of the many great food halls like Chelsea Market, Jordan mentioned, in New York City. Those are also great. London. Going to visit a city, one of the first things I do is what am I going to eat there? What am I going to see? And you check out where the great food markets and food halls are. We have Granville Island. Phenomenal. Yes, Let's build on that. Do this in Chinatown. And I think, you know what they say? If you build it, people will come and that will thrive. I love this idea. Can't wait to see what the next steps are going to be on that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
I've been hearing in the news about the problems that BC Ferries has been having to get its regular sailings going to the north coast. The sailings that essentially connect Haida Gwaii and Prince Rupert, well, they've still been cancelled. They've got crew shortages. They haven't been doing that. But those ferries, they aren't just, you know, ferries taking people back and forth. It's the highway connecting those two communities. It is absolutely necessary and a lifeline. So they're hoping that by Friday, they'll get these back up and running. But I was thinking, you know what, that's unacceptable. You've got to make sure communities stay connected when you are the only link for them. So we thought, let's check in with the community and find out how things are going there. Joining us now is Chris Olson, Mayor of the Village of Queen Charlotte. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, good morning, Sengate Law. How are you doing there, Simi? I am good, thank you. More importantly, though, how is your community doing right now? Um, well, we're uh, we're weathering this storm, and, and we're working hard to figure everything out. It's been uh, we're on day number five, and uh, yesterday we actually uh, received uh, a ferry, um, but it wasn't bringing passengers. It had brought vehicles, and it, it brought our essential goods, our, our food. So we actually had a ferry come over yesterday. Um, trying to figure things out but it's 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 been an interesting uh, realization realization of just how fragile we are here and how how dependent we are on bc ferries being our highway and highway 16. yeah are you surprised or concerned mayor that there wasn't more of a backup plan absolutely this is two years um we've been dealing with covid and we've had um, an understanding that throughout this whole time that if uh, the ferry was to have crew shortages that there would be some sort of accommodation and uh, we received a cancellation I was actually in Prince Rupert on Sunday and uh, we received about an, about an hour before the ferry um, was to leave the cancellation um, so everyone was left uh, kind of stranded in Rupert figuring out what's going on by uh, by Monday morning um, we are starting to figure out the, the the ferry looks like it's still going to be cancelled. So by the about two o'clock in the afternoon on Monday, um, they announced that there was cancellations. So uh, myself and a number of other the mayors um, and elected officials that we were over on the main lakes were in meetings. We actually chartered a plane to get home, um, but we started to realize that. Uh, this ferry was not going to be sailing anytime soon and leaving a number of our residents stranded on, on the mainland. Um, our high school of, um, girls soccer team was stranded over there. Um, you know, there are people over for medical were stranded over there. Um, one of our school teachers, um, and his partner just had a, a newborn baby. They were stranded over there on the mainland. And it, it just, it just showed that BC ferries hadn't been planning for this throughout the pandemic, which was kind of upsetting because, this is our highway. Yeah. It's the only way on and off the island. Okay. Again, I, I agree with that completely. Very upsetting to have that happen. So since this has happened, then, Merrillson, what has changed? Has BC Ferries communicated anything with you? What What's going on? Well, they've started communicating. The communication was extremely poor at the beginning. It was just basically the rumor mill. Everyone, uh, you know, talking to one another. And, you know, a lot of us have friends and family that actually work in BC Ferries. Um, you know, this is a small, tight-knit area of British Columbia. Um, so at first, it was really just a rumor mill. Um, I received my first real true communication email. would have been Tuesday evening, um, explaining what was going on and the rationale for why this had happened. Um, and then started receiving another email yesterday. Um, other than that, it was really just uh, the ferry notices that were being put up. And, you know, it was very hard for a lot of our residents because as of Tuesday, they were phoning into the call-in line and a lot of the um, the operators receiving the calls 
were unaware of the situation that was going on on the North Coast. They uh, were just hearing from their customers for the first time. So as of yesterday, um, the briefing that went out explained that uh, the call-in agents um, were aware of what was going on. So it was for a lot of people on the mainland, they were calling in and trying to get reservations and getting cancelled, and it was really, really no answers, which is quite upsetting. So, Merrillson, is this something that you feel like needs to be taken up to another level? Like, have you talked to the Minister of Transportation? What more can be done here? Well, it's interesting that you ask that question because we have been seeing this um, for a while. And our community actually recently, remember the Area Association of Vancouver Island Coastal Communities? And we brought three resolutions forward that we're hoping to bring to UBCM, which were endorsed um, at the convention earlier this month, um, regarding issues with BC ferries. Uh, Cancellation, participation um, in the ferry advisory commissions. And we actually had arranged a meeting with the Minister of Transportation. And and that that meeting was actually um, organized over a month ago, and it was uh, for Tuesday. So we we had a pre-arranged meeting regarding issues with BC Ferries because we saw the writing on the wall. And uh, so we had met with uh, the Minister of Transportation on on Tuesday, and, and it was just like, you know, the opportunity to express, like, here we are. This is what we're seeing. Um, this is our reality. Cancellations are occurring more and more. They're becoming more frequent. Um, and when you're cancelled, you're not rebooked. You're just left yeah. to, to reorganize your life. And it, it's been it's been really difficult. I mean, this doesn't just affect Haida Gwaii. This is also the Central Coast now and all the ferries that go down to uh, Port Hardy and, you know, like Bellacoola, you know, those areas within our uh, within the coast. So it's, it's the one vessel right now that's serving all of the central coast as well as the north coast and we need a, a guaranteed ferry here um one ferry for Haida Gwaii to Prince Rupert and one ferry for the central coast um in six days a week would be what we need because currently with the booking system the way it works is people see that they're going to be on the wait list so they don't come or they don't book and in reality I and everyone else knows here on Haida Gwaii that if you're 20 25 on the wait list you're going to get on the ferry. But, you know, there's only 60-something berths on the ferry, and here we are. We know that if if you're number 20 on the wait list, you're going to get on. Something's wrong with the booking system. And if you're going to make a trip and travel out here to one of the most beautiful places we have in Canada and in the world, and you're on the wait list, you're most likely not going to make that booking. So I think a single ferry for the North Coast, a single ferry for the Central Coast is a way to remedy this situation. Okay, I think there's a lot of work here that needs to be done. Mayor Olson, thank you for joining us. Listen, keep us up to date. Let us know how it goes. Well, thank you so much, Simi, and we're hoping that we'll get some uh, we'll get some of our residents on the ferry today. Fingers crossed. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, we're just hoping that PC Ferries hears us and they understand that our situation is is our highway. Yes, and it this absolutely is, the, is. This is our lifeline to, it is. to the rest of British Columbia. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that. That's Chris Olson, Mayor of the Village of Queen Charlotte. Their lifeline is BC Ferries, and they have been let down this week by not having that service. And it sounds like very little communication, too, as to what's going on there. So definitely there are more questions on that to come. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about medical procedures, particularly ones that involve implementing any kind of a device like a joint replacement or if you're in the hospital, let's say a catheter, something like that. The the concern over infection is very serious and very real. 
But there might be a way to fight this. Joining us now is our contributor, Raji Sohal, for more on this. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, a team at UBC looked at this problem, the the one of infection from medical devices. It's a huge issue. And they came up with this kind of coating of silver to repel bacteria, not only kill bacteria, but kill viruses and fungi. Because what happens normally is that these medical objects, these medical devices, they are made of different materials, right? Like titanium or or plastics. Uh, People might get hip replacements or knee replacements or catheters that contain, you know, a variety of these different materials. Now, at the time of surgery, they're they're sterilized, and the hope is that the patient's body and their immune system doesn't reject them, because if they do, and that usually happens within the first few days, then they have to go through uh, an antibiotic treatment to get rid of the infection, and that's not always successful. It's also highly expensive, because it means that patient has to come back to the hospital to get that uh, device taken out and replaced with another. And actually, I learned in doing this story that catheters are the leading hospital-associated infection in Canada. I've heard this. Yes, I've had experiences in my family. It's terrible. Yeah, and this costs a significant amount of money for the system to treat. So it's hard on the patient and really hard on the system. Expensive. And the only way to address that infection is to remove the catheter, treat the infection, put in a new one, And in the meantime, you've also increased antibiotic resistance in the patient. So a lot of issues associated with that that are just tough for the system and the patient. And we know that antibiotics, you know, they're helpful, but they're also, you know, putting us in this medical crisis because of how much people have to take them and their overuse we know creates a resistance to uh, the good kinds of bacteria that protect us. So I talked to Dirk Lang. He's a microbiologist who's part of this amazing research that's happening at UBC right now on coding these medical devices with this kind of silver material. And he says the silver is, uh, well, it's kind of a silver bullet for the problem that we're talking about. I mean, I've tested many different technologies over the years and and read about and reviewed many different technologies. So I'm a very skeptical person when it comes to you know, medical device technologies. But the difference here is that what we have done is we've taken a step back and we've said, okay, so a lot have been te- tr- a lot has been tried in the, f- in, in, the, in the medical device field in preventing infection. Nothing has really been successful. So why has it failed? In bl- blood, for example, or urine, for example, is full of all kinds of proteins and other components that, like I said, will just form this, this, this barrier on the surface of any medical device. And so that's why we developed this coding to have sort of a dual mechanism, as I always say, number one is to keep the surface clean and prevent the attachment of essentially anything, including bacteria, because that will make sure that the, the, the uh, release of the antimicrobial designed to kill the bacteria remains Im- unimpeded essentially for as long as possible. And the reason we chose mm-hmm. silver mm-hmm. Uh, is because it's already widely used in in, in, in medic- medicine. So, Simi, this means that if they use silver, they're coating things with silver, then the silver, it, c- it continues to release that antibacterial effect in the body. And so they've tested this up to 90 days and it's been successful. And now they're hoping to do it for longer in clinical trials. But what really matters in terms of watching infection around a medical device that's been put in someone's body is the first few days. That's when it usually appears. And he said that the advantage of using silver as silver coating on these medical devices is that we could use it on a lot of stuff. 
we can apply this coating to virtually any material. I mean, you name it, we've done it. So we've put it on various plastics, metals, glass, uh, fabrics, uh, so on and so forth. And so the beauty about it is that the application of it is just as simple as I mentioned before. You can just either dip your material in it or spray it on or, 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 or flow it through depending on what the material is. Okay, that's fascinating, Raji. So that, like, how quickly then can they get this into widespread use? So it would have to go through like a broader clinical trial, uh, but he said the outlook is very good for it. Silver, they've long known that it's an antimicrobial, that it kills bacteria, virus, fungi, but there is this other issue, which is of silver toxicity. So they have to make sure it can't be released too quickly because uh, if that happens in a patient, it has a uh, a poor effect. It can kill cells. Uh, so the composition of the coating matters. But what they've seen in their study is that the amount of silver that is in the body from a medical device is is so low that uh, they shouldn't be have to they shouldn't have to worry about a sustained um, release at non toxic levels. So this is really interesting and cool. And he even talked to me about how they could cover. Uh, you know, medical curtains with this. They could cover um, instruments with this silver coating. They can cover virtually anything um, in the theater, in the ER room, or in the surgery room uh, when they are at the time of implementing these devices, which is could be a game changer. Okay, that sounds amazing because if you can, like superbugs are such a huge concern and they come in hospitals and just fighting infections and all of those things. I mean, that's, that's a time-consuming, money-consuming, horrible problem in the healthcare system. And this sounds like it could really tackle that. Yeah, it could actually make things in the whole system a lot more efficient, especially when you're not having to um, expect in some cases that an infection might occur. Um, so a patient might only have to come in one time for that medical device implementation rather than, you know, monitoring the infection, having them come in again, remove the device. I mean, I know people that have gone through uh, that kind of roller coaster with uh, medical device implementation. And boy, it is not fun. It's really hard on the patient. Oh, so interesting. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our contributor, Raji Silhal, there talking about the prevention of these infections in a hospital setting if you're having some kind of medical implementation done and really hopeful that there might be making some progress in fighting. This is Mornings with Simi. Are healthcare workers afraid to speak out? Well, this has been brought up in the legislature this week, the idea that workers can't talk about staff burnout or broken aspects of the healthcare system because they're not protected by whistleblower legislation and they are afraid of being fired. One of the MLAs who brought that up in the legislature joins me now to talk more about it. It's Peter Millibar, Kamloops North Thompson MLA and BC Liberal official opposition critic for finance. Thanks for joining us this morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. What are you hearing from healthcare workers? Well, we're, we're hearing this uh, repeatedly. Todd Stone and myself had, had a meeting uh, just last week uh, with about seven nurses that uh, all say the same thing. They're, they're not allowed to speak out publicly. Uh, they're even worried coming to an MLA office to, to speak. We have to reassure them that um, you know, their, their meeting notes won't be shared publicly, that uh, there'll be no identification, male or female, um, what ward they work on, things like that. So it makes it very hard to tell the story of what is actually going on in hospitals and in healthcare. 
um, when you can't attach those types of uh, descriptors to things. And and uh, one just has to ask themselves, why have we not seen any actual nurses uh, named publicly in any media with any regularity through all of this? And do you think that order has come, that they know that, or have they been told that? How has the message gotten through to them? Well, in the case of Interior Health, uh, they, they routinely get uh, um, reminded of the document that they, they work under, which says, and I quote from it, uh, they're not allowed to uh, bring uh, Interior Health into disrepute. Um, and so it seems like health authorities are, are more worried about their reputation uh, the nurses being free to speak uh, speak to what's actually happening. I've discussed this privately with Minister Dix. He insists that's not the case. I then said, well, then, if you're going on radio and Ellen Kamloops the next day anyways, I, w- I would challenge you to say that very publicly on radio so that local nurses know that they can speak freely. He's refused to do that. He won't acknowledge that... Uh, uh, they have uh, punitive actions will be taken against nurses, yet every single nurse we meet with of every MLA has hearing the same thing from the nurses. So either he needs to very publicly uh, clear the air once and for all so all those nurses uh, know exactly where they stand, um, or they truly are working under a gag order, which is completely unacceptable. And do you think this has come about because of the pressures of the pandemic, or has this always existed? Well, I think what's happened is in the last while, uh, uh, the government did change and make some amendments to whistleblower protections. However, they excluded nurses until late 2024 at the earliest. And so um, on the one hand, uh, the government is trying to say that uh, they're there to protect workers. On the other hand, when it comes to nurses in particular, uh, they've uh, taken special care to make sure that they have actually been excluded uh, from whistleblower protection. Uh, it's, It's not acceptable. Uh, the public needs to to be able to hear freely what is actually happening uh, in their hospitals, in their health centers, uh, the care for their loved ones, how short-staffed things are. Um, it makes it much too easy for government to try to say, oh, that's not really happening. When we're hearing uh, nurses say that on, on wards that would normally have nine, nine uh, nurses on a shift uh, working with three, uh, and the minister just says, oh, you have no actual facts to back that up, but no nurse can publicly come forward and say and raise their hand and say, I was working that shift. We only had three nurses on. Um, it makes a very easy pass for the minister, and it's not acceptable. So how is it that healthcare workers are not covered under whistleblower legislation? How have we just left that category out, or have we? Well, when, when you talk to the nurses' union, they've been pointing this out for some time. Uh, unfortunately, under the the cover of COVID, I think people were understandably uh, distracted and and, um, and and you know thinking that all healthcare woes were were COVID related. Uh, they simply weren't. Things were getting worse in, in healthcare uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, the cert- pandemic certainly did not help things by any means, uh, but that that continuing trend is is just there. And um, you know, there's a certain irony. We're, we're debating a bill in the House right now about taking away the secret ballot. Uh, for unions uh, certification because it's supposed to help workers. Yet here we have a government that refuses to bring in uh, protection for nurses to actually speak about the safety issues that are going on in the workplace. Right. Your writing is Kamloops North Thompson. That is Interior Health. Have you talked to Interior Health and what do they say about this? You get much of the same, that that's not really what it's intended to be and that no one should feel that that, that they can't speak and, and uh, bring things forward, um, but we prefer it's done, uh, um, you know, to management. Well, well, the nurses have a big problem with a lot of the management and what's happening, and that's, that's driving a lot of the concern. So, um, you know, they feel like they're talking to a wall. 
as I say, I, I you know, I, I've been an MLA or an elected official for a long time now. I've never seen it where people routinely and repeatedly, um, they, they literally do not even want their names attached to emails that they send to our office. If they're setting up meetings, they're worried um, about uh, any media that might uh, find out that we're having a meeting and, and what the topic would be. Um, these people are truly and genuinely uh, afraid for their jobs. Uh, the punitive natures that might come their way and, and they need to have a very clear message from Minister Dix that they are absolutely free uh, to speak freely as long as they're not divulging patient identifying information. I want to make that very clear. This is just about the overall work conditions and, and uh, workloads and, and, and shifts where there's not enough nurses on and things like that. We need to get a very clear uh, an accurate and open discussion uh, about what's truly happening in the healthcare system. So by coming forward, by bringing this up in the legislature then, are you hearing more about it, do you think? Like, will do you feel that people might come forward? Well, uh, I, what we need to come forward is the minister or the premier to come forward and make a very clear, very public and, and very definitive statement uh, that nurses have no fear of retribution, job action or firings. Uh, for speaking freely without patient identifying information about what is truly happening uh, in the healthcare system. Um, that's really what we need. The nurses are coming forward. They're coming forward to, oh, I guarantee they're coming forward at least to the PC Liberal MLA offices. They're probably a little more fearful to go to an NDP MLA office, but I, I would assume some still are reaching out, trying to get some help, trying to get supports, trying to have their, their voice heard. Um, and, and this fear of, like I say, I mean, you've been in media for a while now too. When have you ever seen a story about working conditions with nurses and things like that, where it's always unnamed, unnamed sources, unnamed sources? There's a reason they don't want their names, and, and the minister can shrug his shoulders and try to pretend it doesn't exist. It's very real uh, within the workplace. Nurses have been calling for this to be changed for some time. The government's saying maybe late 24. Uh, it, we're saying that's simply not good enough. People need uh, to be able to start uh, making sure the public truly understands the magnitude of the problem. Mm, Mr. Millibar, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Peter Millibar is the MLA for Kamloops, North Thompson, BC Liberal Official Opposition Critic for Finance. But he's been raising this issue in the legislature this week about healthcare workers being afraid to come forward because they fear for their jobs and that they're not protected by whistleblower legislation. And what is going on in some of these hospitals and healthcare settings? I, you know, if somebody wants to contact me, obviously we would love to hear your story. And definitely if it's anonymous is necessary, go right ahead and do that anonymously. But you can email me, simi at cknw.com. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.